welcome to another episode of Visitings, where we talk to artists who are engaged with the public outside the traditional exhibition space. Why are they drawn to these communities and what's the stuff that inspires them? My name is Alan Nakugawa and I'll be your host. Across the nation, we are seeing an epidemic of economic development that is displacing communities. It's a controversial subject that has fragmented populations. Artists are taking up the cause in every city. One of the groups who have blazed the trail is based in New York. They are the Chinatown Art Brigade. In a room in Brooklyn, New York, on the 16th anniversary of 9-11, I sat down with co-founder Betty Yu. The Chinatown Art Brigade uh, is a cultural art collective um, advancing social justice and we basically started off as three women who are all uh, born, raised and born in New York City and we have all had an independent relationship with uh, CAV uh, which is um, a group that started out about 31 years ago now um, as an anti-Asian violence coalition and it really grew out of the response to the killing of Vincent Chin um, oh. in Detroit yeah, yeah. and as a result of that people really wanted to organize against anti-Asian violence um, and um, also police brutality against Asian Americans um, and so what grew out of that was a pan-Asian organization organizing immigrant and working class low-income um, folks from 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 the pan-Asian community um, and about 10 years ago they started organizing tenants in Chinatown over 10 years ago and they started the Chinatown Tenants Union and um, have been based in Chinatown for over 10 years now but the Chinatown Tenants Union organizes immigrant tenants who are facing illegal evictions displacement because of rising rents um, harassment by landlords um, you know in, in Chinatown alone um, the construction has gone up a hundred um, a thousand percent rather a thousand percent in only 15 years since 9-11 and because many people don't know that after 9-11 the real estate developers really came in um, and and really uh, use it as an opportunity to displace a whole lot of people uh, and specifically Latino and Chinese uh, low-income folks in the housing projects as well as um, in Chinatown in the tenement buildings and so what we're seeing now is it really directly as a result of 9-11 of course today is the anniversary uh, but a lot of people who um, got sick and also were displaced by 9-11 and so um, CTU the Chinatown Tenants Union has been doing this work for a really long time trying to protect tenant rights and um, the three of us myself Tamiya Arai who is a legendary Japanese American artist who is uh, have tremendous amount of respect for and, and she did some of the iconic murals in Chinatown in the 70s and 80s that are all now gone because of gentrification but she worked with a lot of young people and nonprofits in the 70s and 80s and, and created eight beautiful murals on buildings um, anyway so she who has um, she started she helped start some of the iconic uh, old Asian American collectives like basement or workshop and um, uh, Godzilla and Kazuki and, and some of these other collectives. So someone like her, uh, someone like me, I'm a filmmaker, multimedia artist, um, I'm an educator and activist. And then Mansi Kong, who is a filmmaker, who's making a film about Danny Chen, who um, actually was a soldier who was hazed um, when he was in boot camp. And as a result, he killed himself. Anyway, Chinese American who lived in Chinatown and she's a filmmaker and has been involved with 
uh, CAV, the activist group, since she was in high school, um, or I believe in her early 20s at least. So for, for you know, well over 15, 16 years she's been involved. So the three of us uh, were approached by CAV. And um, as you probably know, I'm, I'm sure organizing in LA is very, very similar or anywhere really, which is that organizing tenants um, and organizing in a very highly contentious neighborhood like Chinatown where gentrification um, is at its maximum, right? So you have artists uh, who are coming in, you have galleries who are coming in, very much similar, but in a different way, uh, like Boyle Heights in LA. But in Chinatown, we have about 120 galleries that have landed in Chinatown really in the last six years, wow. six to 10 years. And you have, it's a very, 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 very volatile and highly uh, tense situation. And so I think that because of that, um, the organizing has accelerated. You have tenants and immigrant tenants, documented and undocumented, who are coming forward because the conditions are just so bad. And, um, you know, CAV really were, was at the point where they thought, we need to, to, to change it up, the, or, the organizing strategy, that is. They wanted to figure out how to integrate art, culture, and media into the organizing work. What was um, it before? Before, you know, traditional door knocking, if anyone who listens to your show knows anything about activism and organizing, and I did that for many years in Chinatown myself, you know, um, you, you know, you, door knocking, tabling, um, street outreach, protests and marches, all of that is very effective and very important. But I think in order to really change hearts and minds, right, we also have to change um, the culture of what people think, right, and helping to raise people's consciousness. And often that is uh, through stories, through people's stories, through helping others understand the stories of those most directly impacted. And so CAB has had in their um, 30 year existence has had have had like media collectives have often worked with artists and so this um, in this last you know 10 years I guess in terms of, of, of the tenant organizing they realized that there was another um, cultural sort of approach that they wanted to take. And so together, we sort of decided to embark on this project. And to be honest, when we first started, we had no idea it would take off like this and the amount of attention and grants and um, you know things that we've received throughout the way um, has been really surprising to all of us. We really just started off saying, thinking we wanted to be a cultural arm, right, of this kind of uh, organizing that was happening on the ground. And anything we could do in the form of media and video and art uh, to help advance the stories, to help um, provide a platform for the stories to be amplified and heard in a much larger, um, uh, you know, uh, context is, 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 is what we're aiming to do. Um, and then as we started to talk, um, we started meeting with the tenants, right? And so I think a part of what makes Chinatown Art Brigade so unique is that we work very, very, very closely with the tenants union. So it's not that we're coming in and making art for them. It's not that we're coming in and taking the stories and extracting them and leaving and editing them, but it's very much a co-creation period. And so what really jumpstart, um, I guess, our project really is we received a, a blade of grass grant. We were a fellow in 2016, and we also received a, a local grant from the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council um, in, to collaborate with CAV. It, um, and and what, what, what it helped us do was create this eight-week cultural production workshop in the summer of last year where we work with tenants to, um, to create cultural products um, and to use uh, media and culture to uh, tell the stories of people who are often in the shadows or often not even heard. Their voices are often left out of the 
gentrification, um, a displacement debate. You'll hear policymakers talk, you'll hear small businesses talk, you'll hear these various voices, but you often don't hear about the most vulnerable who are immigrant tenants who are being uh, really, uh, really living in life and death situations actually quite often if you go into these tenement buildings and you and you visit some of the tenants who are really uh, brave and, and, and standing up and fighting. But, you know, we as we talk, we realize that we wanted to do these street projections and and um, and the reason for that was because a lot of folks, right, uh, think of um, art as, as, as something that is sort of a, a uh, inaccessible, high art, elitist um, kind of art form that is not accessible to people in the community. And for us, we really wanted to demystify that. A, art and culture has existed in Chinatown since the beginning of Chinatown, right? And so for the last 150 years, the reason why there is a Chinatown is because of the Exclusion Act, as we know. The Chinese Exclusion Act made it so that people had to band together and figure it out, right? They, they were discriminated against in every every possible way you can imagine, housing, right, loans. So, you know, so obviously because of the the, the historical sort of exclusion discrimination against Chinese, Chinatown exists for a reason, right? And so culture um, and art has, has just been embedded inherently a part of the community for, for a very long, long time. So we wanted to make it clear to the gallerists, the 120 galleries and the artists, right, often the f people in the front lines of, of gentrification are artists, um, that it wasn't about Chinatown Art Brigade coming in and extracting something or, or teaching them something, but we're simply amplifying what is there already. And so that was really important to us. And so from the ground, what we were hearing is this idea of the need to demystify the art making process. And so for us, it became clear doing these street projections was something that would be really appealing to the masses and to people in the community um, because um, oftentimes people are working a lot, right, of hours, and there's no time to 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 do to go to go out and do something that is um, an art kind of. Uh, going activity or something like that, but the idea was that we it was key for us to, to make this a public art project That was really really key and so throughout the weeks the eight weeks what we did was from uh, community mapping to story circles to people sharing their stories we, we have coined something called a placekeeping walk and as, as opposed to a tour. So a placekeeping walk was something that we designed over a couple of weeks where tenants on a map would describe, um, would on a map point out specific points of Chinatown that were really significant to them. So places that are no longer there, things that um, are, are have vanished. Um, for instance, uh, one of the members she is a garment worker and the place that she used to work at before 9-11 was this, this building, this garment building, and now it's a luxury gym, right? Um, showing just sort of changes. All the bakeries that used to be there, my, my parents are garment workers too, and they worked in Chinatown. A lot of the bakeries that are there serving the immigrant population no longer there. They're galleries now, right? So easily, like a uh, rent that was like $6,000 is now $25,000. Even just within, literally within 15 years, it's gone up to $25,000, $30,000 for a small storefront. And so you're looking at this, right? And so the idea for us was always Jeez. to have it centered around immigrant voices. Mm -hmm. And so place the placekeeping walks became central because you had um, artists, um, uh, uh, other allies and concerned citizens and other folks who were who were invited to be a part of the walks, right? But it was really led by the tenants. And so throughout these eight workshops, um, through eight weeks, and through uh, discussion and deep thinking and dialogue and relationship building, 
we created images and messaging with the tenants throughout these weeks, and um, in some cases, animations and videos. And so that was what you sort of people saw when those were projected onto the walls at night on buildings, was a result of this co sort of creation and co production with tenants and their stories. Um, and we had like about four projections throughout that year um and and we're going to continue those um, but now we're sort of embarking on a new phase of the project i the reason why i sort of gave the backstory because i because i think it's really important for us to uh for listeners to hear that it's um for us it wasn't just like something that came out of our head and we just went to, into the community to mm -hmm. do it but it really came out of the community's needs and came out of organizing and activism um and we felt like we wanted to respond to that in some way so um, I'm not exactly who, who the developer population is, but how do you, how do you uh, approach the, the challenge of a multilingual constituency? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming the developers are primarily English speaking. That might be incorrect on my part, but um, you know it's interesting. Um, there is a lot of uh, if you break down all the the, the satellite Chinatowns that are being gentrified, meaning um, Sunset Park, Brooklyn, where I grew up, Flushing in Queens, um, which is another satellite Chinatown, and then Chinatown Manhattan. Majority of the folks who absolutely are gentrifying and are the developers are English speaking, right? They're like big, large financial businesses and banks, but a huge portion is overseas Chinese money. Oh. Because of the, the boom in China, um, it's become so lucrative for people in China to buy and to collaborate with real estate developers here to buy a lot of land. Mm. And as we know, in New York City, even though everyone thinks that Mayor de Blasio is such a progressive mayor, he's not. And on housing, he's horrible. And under his watch, there are a number of rezoning plans that are on underway. So rezoning, right, to us, rezoning is a bad thing, right? Because rezoning, in this case, what it means is that it's changing, uh, it's changing the jurisdiction for an area for a more commercial right property to go up and more residential right mm -hmm. high luxury residential property to go up and so it's very lucrative for these developers and for overseas money to come in and they build and they get tax breaks because they say you know a small percentage will be for affordable housing for 10 years or 20 years mm -hmm. and then it becomes 100 percent luxury housing and affordable housing is not affordable affordable for chinatown i mean just to give it a sense of the numbers from the last uh census um in 2010 the average income of a family of four in chinatown is about thirty-five thousand dollars a a year for okay. a family of four um rent needs to be about 900 a little over 900 for it to be affordable Rent now is hovering as much as eight thousand dollars for one bedroom in Chinatown, average about five to six, five, five, three, three to five thousand um, dollars, and affordable housing in Chinatown now, in terms of the new properties going up, someone has to make sixty-five thousand dollars, sixty to seventy thousand dollars for it to be affordable. Wow, that's not affordable to anyone in the community, in the Latino or in the Chinatown part of of the of of the lower lower east side so what we're seeing is that, that what is that based on the median income actually is based on um so if anyone knows new york city there's new york city and then there's like uh westchester and the suburban areas and long island that is um much wealthier much 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 wealthier and that much higher tax um 
tax base. Mm -hmm. And so they do the AMI, which is the average median income, by using all of New York City, including oh, those areas. So if you did it by the city or you did it by neighborhood, then it would be very different. Right. But the average income give, with those wealthy suburban areas, right, is, is 60 to 70 around there so that's a year. And so what you're seeing is that nobody is able to afford it. And so language is not necessarily a barrier because you have... Um, what is happening is you have these, um, how do I say this in a nice way, you have these sellout nonprofits in Chinatown who used to represent the community at some point or another are getting bought off, right? They're saying, well, we'll just do a little bit of affordable housing here and to shut up some of these larger nonprofits. Yeah. You have city council members who look like me, who speak Chinese like me, but are not necessarily representing the interest of the people, right? Of the, the most vulnerable, for, people in Chinatown. And so um, language is really not an issue. I mean, of course, you know, we've had to even fight. CAV and other groups have even fight for just like basic translation at community board meetings right. and into Spanish and Chinese, which didn't exist, even though the large part, part population is, is, is non-English speaking. So you have those things, those cosmetic things are important. But what you're having is policymakers like de Blasio, and you have developers um, these these you know multi-billion dollar developers who already have a plan right that they want to to sort of just roll out and so these community board meetings and this community uh, uh, process these town hall meetings it, it, it's all a dog and pony show and everyone knows it and so what what we're trying to do is working with cab and some other groups in Chinatown there's something called a Chinatown working group plan but not to get too technical about eight nine years ago a bunch of activists community groups small businesses uh, unlikely bedfellows got together and said we need to figure out how to protect Chinatown, um, and so there's a there's a there's a plan in place, working with economists, working with city planners, and it's a plan that actually protects affordable housing, okay. that discourages big box stores and big box you know luxury development. Yet that plan everyone wants to ignore. De Blasio, uh, Mayor De Blasio, and all these other policymakers say it's not possible, these are things that are not possible, yet the plan is very realistic. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, so that so the push is really to have parts of the to have Chinatown protected and the Lower East Side, the waterfront protected um, under this plan. And that's really something we've been pushing for. So because even if you protect tenants one by one or building by building, you're still not solving the fundamental problem of the large the larger community. So for us it's about a two-pronged strategy. So in our art and cultural uh, work that we're doing, it's not just about telling people's stories and mm -hmm. definitely not as victims, but as fighters, as people who are resisting, but not just resisting building by building. People are concerned about how do we protect the community as a whole for generations to come. Because if we don't, this is this is a, this is a critical time. If we don't fight for Chinatown and Lower mm -hmm. East Side at this time, it's, 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 if you walk in Chinatown, I, week to week I walk through Chinatown some store is gone. Some tofu making shop is gone. Some restaurant. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, I hate to say like, it's a dire situation, but it's really really at that po point. And um and I think that the reason why Chinatown Art Brigade has gotten so much attention is because you have a really weird, interesting dynamic of young people who are coming back and trying to like figure out okay, how do I get involved in this, right? Um, and maybe they're not activists per se, but through the art project or through some other cultural organizing they want to get involved and these are young Asian Americans who are second generation maybe or first generation their parents still live in Chinatown or did 
but they've maybe been pushed out already. Mm. But we're seeing a lot of interest from young people, uh, which is really great. I mean, really been really great to see that. The projections, can you walk me through what, what happens? with the projections? Yeah, so um, we're working with um, uh, uh, one of our collect, the, another collective we're working with closely is called the Illuminator. The Illuminator came out of Occupy Wall Street. So if people know uh, during Occupy Wall Street, there was all these projections in lower Manhattan and throughout the city, you know, um, the 99%, you know, the bat signal, all, all these kind of things that those projections um, were, were led by a collective called uh, the Illuminator. So they have this big, beautiful truck with these high luminous lenses, these beautiful lenses that can um, can replicate a really crisp image at night onto walls from 20, 30 blocks away. They're really, really amazing uh, projectors. And you know, we collaborate with them early on. They were early partner. We knew we couldn't make this happen without them because we don't have access to a $30,000, you know, uh, mm-hmm. truck, you know, with, with equipment built in. And so what, what we did was we wanted, the idea was to make it really accessible to the tenants to help create images and messaging for the projections. So like, you know, those eight weeks, like I said, was all about community building and all of that and, 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 and relationships, but it was also about creating content for the projections. So really in the last couple of weeks before the projection, um, we uh, create, we tried all, from all the photographs they took, from all the maps, conversations, and stories, they all got translated into either text or images. And we work with them really closely to specifically think about who do we want to message. So as a tenants and working with us, we figured, okay, A, we want to reach out to other tenants, to organize other tenants to get involved. Second target audience was gentrifiers and artists saying, hey, you cannot just be a bystander. If you're in our community, you're either with us or against us, to be you know, clear, you can join the fight, you can do something to fight this. Third, third audience was policymakers. We wanted to say, hey, policymakers, there is a Chinatown Working Group plan. There are other ways that concretely you can protect the community. Mm. So coming out of the tenants, we realized that we had to have some different messaging going on to, 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 to reach out to different kinds of folks. So we had Chinese, Spanish, and English language projections. And so through that process, we got the messaging together. And um, honestly, it was a number of us in the, in, in the brigade, um, uh, a few of us, along with one or two tenants, but it was really us that put together the final images and animations and then we brought it to a larger uh, Chinatown Tenants Union um, meeting. And um, all of the members had a chance to look at all the images, look at the animations, and vote. They actually, literally, we put it up on the wall and they literally walked around, did a gallery walk, and voted for the images that they wanted to be up on, um, to be up on the projections. You know, um, the last piece of, that was really participatory was something called a people's pad. So people could, random people could come up and there was a pad and they could write their own story and it was projected live as as they were writing it. And so that was really beautiful because we had some tenants who were part of a campaign where they were fighting their landlord, uh, um, working with China Tenants Union, and they came out and they um, wrote their stories out live. Nice. Um, and it was being projected across the street from the building that they were organizing. Wow. So they were trying to send messages to other tenants, like, you know, come join us, right, you know? Right, and that, right. that was also a really, really beautiful moment. 
um, to see that because that is the point. We're not just doing this because it's an art project or just a public art project with projections, but there's actually a, 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 a political uh, 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 objective, you know, a organizing objective to it. So. And um, is all of this online? Can people look at it? Not all of it. I would say some of it, for sure. Some of it, if you go to um, Chinatown Art Brigade, org and under video and there's a, a media gallery and there's photos and video that you can watch uh, we're working on actually editing a reel uh, together a sh some short clips from our last this most recent projection that we had um, so so yeah a lot of it and if you go to social if you go to Facebook and write in Chinatown Art Brigade you'll see some of our live streaming and some video that we've we've uh, we've captured from the from the last few projections for sure nice. yeah amazing yeah I, I didn't I didn't know anything about the background or the relevancy of the 9-11 uh-huh uh-huh it's appropriate that I'm interviewing you today yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah. it's definitely complicated right yeah, yeah because it's, it's complicated because uh, I you know if you really look literally at I mean everyone in the community makes reference to 9-11 how that really changed the dynamic in wow. terms of gentrification that is heavy um because all the money that came i don't know if you remember all the 9-11 relief money that supposedly supposedly was supposed to go to small business owners and residents and, it, and most of it never really went there it really went to d developers and the larger, I should say, greedy Chinese business owners that never it never really trickled down to the people who needed it. My own parents, um, like I said, garment workers, and after 9-11, the trucks couldn't, garment trucks couldn't get in, right? So work really stalled. Like my parents like were pretty much out of work and couldn't work. Wow. Um, a lot of people, right, lost their jobs. And while that was happening, that was an opportunity to convert a lot of these factories because there were at least 800 factories in Chinatown before 9-11, if not more, close to a thousand. Now there's a handful, right? And so uh, those are now converted into galleries, into uh, office spaces, and it's, 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 it's totally, I mean, like night and day. Not to say those garment jobs were really high paying jobs at all, right? They were sweatshop jobs, but uh, it's very, very different now. So yeah. you have those businesses that are coming in, catering to the gentrifiers. You know, you have um, a mission Chinese place um, that I guess came out of San Francisco. It was like a Chinese, um, I forgot his, anyway, some some high-end chef, you know, who opened up his restaurant in Chinatown. It's like, you go in there, you, you have to pay $20 for fried rice. It's like, it's it's a little ridiculous. <laughs> it's must, like, it's- Is it it's, really good? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I, I like have issues walking in there. It's not yeah. that it's a principle right of mine. Um, Twenty dollars. Yeah. It's it, it, it. I have no idea. Like it would be like seven bowls worth. No, but you know it's the high end <laughs> stuff, right? Okay. And so high end, whatever that means oh. to me, you know. Sure, so sure. it's it's a lot of small businesses are being displaced. Uh, you know, I can tell you one story really quickly of a mm -hmm. tofu making shop that was around for uh, four gener three generations, three to four, 85-year-old shop, only place that made fresh tofu. All the other places got their tofu from this place. Oh. Shut down because the landlord sold their building, a very low building, not very, not very big and, and not that uh, well-maintained, but they sold the building for $10 million, which is actually wow. probably one of the highest amounts I've heard of in Chinatown for, to, to, to be able to sell a building for. What it. is it today? 
Yeah, ten million. They, it just happened last. It just happened earlier this year. Oh, oh, I see. So they sold it for ten million dollars. Wow. That concludes another episode of Visitings. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks to Betty Yu for being on the show, and to all of the Chinatown Art Brigade for their important work. Music by yours truly and the Department of Real Estate. Thank you to Echo Park Film Center for this opportunity, and the good folks at Machine Projects and Dub Lab for letting me share this on ninety nine point one FM. I'm Alan Nakagawa, sitting in my living room in Koreatown, saying thank you for listening to Visitings. Thank you.